0: Our scripture reading today is from Exodus 20 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And now from Proverbs 6 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil, false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you so much, Emma. Wow. Will you just do that every Sunday for us? Can we just have you do that? That was amazing. Okay. Well, you shall not lie. I thought about different ways to start this sermon, one of which was, you're all a bunch of liars. Um, but it, I will tell you, it's, it's one of the fascinating things of working through the Ten Commandments. Some of them, you know, I don't assume this is a room full of, of murderers, uh, even though Jesus says, you know, that if we, you know, have hatred in our heart towards people, it's the same. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure all of us are liars. And so, um, and even that part of you that wants to say, no, I'm not, it, that, that's like itself. It's kind of the evidence, right, of it. So um, I want to open this message in a little bit maybe of an unconventional way, but I want to share a couple of quotes as a way of kind of framing uh, how I want to come at this command. So Frederick Buechner, uh, and if you're familiar with Fred Buechner, he's an amazing writer, uh, he wrote this. He said, you can, you can kiss your family and friends goodbye and put miles between you, but at the same time, you carry them with you in your heart and in your mind and in your stomach because you do not just live in a world, but a world lives in you. I think sometimes about how much power we have in what we choose to reveal and in what we choose to Conceal. When you meet somebody for the first time, there is a whole world swirling around inside of them. A world of experiences, fears, hopes, pains, convictions, and context swirling around in them, and you can only see a fraction of it. Kids, if, you're, if you can hear my voice, I'm going to tell you something that kind of blew my mind in college. It was when it occurred to me that my parents had fully formed lives before I was born. They had friends, and they had things they liked and things that they wanted to do. And I realized my whole life, all they really were to me were my mom and dad but there's so much more than my mom and dad. So when you're talking to your parent, like they had teenage years and they had you know an after graduation experience of being a young adult in the world where you aren't part of that. And and that world is still very much intact. And I think about that. Vincent van Gogh said this. This is the other quote I wanted to share. He said, he said, a great fire burns within me, but no one stops to warm themselves at it, and passersby only see a wisp of smoke. When you're going through a tough season, and by the way, we are going through a tough season. There are times when I've got my head down and I've kind of normalized um, the impact of the last 18 months uh, of walking through this pandemic and navigating things. And then there are other times when it'll, it'll be three or four things that'll come my way in the course of a day, and it'll almost feel like it's going to just break my spirit sometimes because it's, this, this has been a hard road for all of us. And I hear about your sorrows, and you hear about some of my sorrows, and we we are walking a road right now. It's a tough season. When you're going through a season like this, or when you're filled with anxiety, or people you love are suffering deeply with matters that are of a discreet nature, those things might rage like a fire inside of you, but those around you may only perceive A wisp of smoke. What does this have to do with the command not to bear false witness? Well, that's what I want to unpack. Is that a lot of false witness is how we meet out interacting with the world as it relates to the world that is burning inside of us. The fire that's burning inside of us. The world that exists. On its face, this command prohibits lying. Um, And it speaks particularly to legal representation, uh, but it includes other forms of dishonesty as well. And uh, I I put together just a little bit of a um, uh, kind of an old-fashioned roundup of forms of dishonesty. I have seven of them. So here are seven ways you can lie. You ready? Number one, you can make an error. Uh, This is a lie that is made by mistake. And so you believe that you're being truthful, but what you're saying is not truthful. That's number one. Number two, a lie of omission. This is leaving out relevant information. Uh, This is one of the easier forms of deception because you don't have to invent a story. Uh, it's, It's passive deception. Number three, reconstructing. This is distorting the context, saying something in sarcasm, or changing the characters in a story, or altering the scene. A fourth way to lie is denial, refusing to acknowledge a truth. Uh, that didn't happen. Gaslighting, right? Uh, the, the, the range can be quite large, um, maybe lying only to others, but a lot of times we do this one to ourselves, right? We live in a form of denial with ourselves, and we lie to ourselves. Number five, minimization. This is kind of in the uh, passive-aggressive category, right? The the minimization is the reducing the effects of a mistake or a judgment in order to get relief or to get people off your back. Number six, exaggeration. Representing something as greater or better or representing yourself as more experienced or more successful, that kind of thing. And then number seven is fabrication, the good old-fashioned, I just made stuff up. Right. Uh, this is deliberately giving a false story. So there, seven forms of lying: error, omission, restructuring, denial, minimization, exaggeration, and fabrication. Not doing those things is one thing, but being untruthful goes a lot deeper than just telling lies or using one of those seven forms of dishonesty. Because we wield great power with what we choose to make known. And we wield great power by what we choose to keep to ourselves. And how we use what we reveal and what we conceal to spin narratives in a certain direction is a great power that all of us have. It's the world that lives inside of us. It's the fire that burns. And that lies at the heart of a command like this. How do we dispense the information about ourselves to others? How do we leverage information? How do we present that information in such a way that it not only promotes truth, but also the well-being of those involved in our words or in our testimonies. When we violate this command against bearing false witness, it really is about guarding the world inside of us. As I was looking at this command, and, and doing, every, every time we, I put together a sermon, I do some research with commentaries and, you know, try to get into the history of a command and In the Old Testament, these commands, I've used the word infrastructure a lot during this sermon series because um, one of the things that that we have to remember about the Ten Commandments is they were given at a time where there wasn't a lot of infrastructure. The people of Israel were wandering nomads who had just escaped from Egypt, and they were not a nation yet, and so they were learning how to live well on their own and how to encounter other nations, And, and so this is the very beginning of that. Um, But it it raises the seriousness of these commands uh, higher than we might perceive them just on their surface. And this one in particular kind of blew my hair back. So I'm going to share that with you, and I've been excited all week to do this, by the way. Um, So the thing to note is that this command is deadly serious. Uh, Proverbs 18.21 says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. And we may hear that and say, man, yeah, we can really hurt somebody's reputation if we lie about them. No, no. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. It's literally true, uh, particularly for the Old Testament culture. Alan Coles, who's one of the commentators that I've been reading throughout this uh, sermon series, uh, said in in the Old Testament culture, quote, and this is why it's life or death, he said, nearly all crimes were capital charges. So a successful false witness would be the equivalent to murder. In other words, if you testified falsely against somebody, that person could be put to death. And that brings me back to that point of of infrastructure that's come up a few times. In those days, they were a wandering group without laws, without legal process. The Ten Commandments were the beginning of that, and their survival as a people, was precarious. It was precarious. And so they didn't mess around with criminality. They didn't mess around with criminality that could do lasting harm to the nation as a whole. And in this sense, they weren't different than any of the other nations either. That justice was swift and extreme and severe, and that was kind of the standard for how things went down. So God wants us, in this time of of multi-layered infrastructure, to take this command seriously. Because back then, if somebody lied about somebody in order to get ahead or in order to evade a negative outcome, they actually took that person's life in their hands. And this was a serious thing to God. How serious was this to God? I'm so glad you asked that question. Deuteronomy which is a laying out of the unpacking of the Ten Commandments. It's the, it's the unfolding of the law. It's, the, you know, you shall not murder means these things. Well, <laughs> there's a passage in Deuteronomy 17 that gives us a law, that gave the people of Israel a law. It doesn't give us the same law, but it gave the Old Testament people of Israel a law that, would, that ought to sober us up uh, when we think about lying as not that big of a deal. The verse is speaking specifically about how to deal with the capital offense of idolatry, of worshiping a God other than God, and doing it in the community. And so I'm going to read you this. This is actually a few verses from Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. And tell me what you hear. It says this, If there is found among you... "'within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, "'a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God "'in transgressing his covenant, "'and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, "'or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, "'which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, "'then you shall inquire diligently. "'And if it is true and certain,' that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you should bring out to your gates that man or that woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. You with me so far? Here's where the other shoe drops. Verse 7. The hand of the witness shall be first among him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So shall you purge evil from your midst. Did you catch it? It says this if you testify against somebody and they're sentenced to die and you're the witness, you have to throw the first stone. this was a deterrent. It was meant to deter people from being petty about this, that you would personally begin the execution of the person that you witnessed against. I know this is heavy. I know this is grim. I know it's not how we roll in 2021. I know that. And yet at the same time, This law served to deter false witnesses. Your false testimony, if it resulted in somebody's death, you would be guilty of murdering them, actually. And so I wanted to show you that so that we can understand the gravity of this command in its original context. Because this one could be easy to just reduce down to, you know, saying you, you didn't take the last piece of cake when you did. It's about so much more than that. And what it's helping us to see is that the truth really is a matter of life and death. So what is bearing false witness exactly? I, I listed those seven forms of deception. Um, those are all there, but it, it, it's, it's got a legal context here, doing it in a formal way. Um, but, but to understand this, it's, I would say it this way. Bearing false witness doesn't just speak to the content of a person's testimony, but it speaks to the obligation of the witness himself or herself. That it, bearing false witness is to, is to be a false witness. If we're obligated to things like kindness and humility, but we tear people down with words that are mean and critical and arrogant, then we as witnesses are conducting ourselves in a way that is contrary to our calling as God's people, who are sworn to love the truth. And so we ourselves, not the content of our lives, of our lives, we ourselves become false witnesses. To bear false witness, in other words, is to become one. And so we're not only pursuing truth-telling, which is the content of our words, but trustworthiness, which is the content of our character. The kids agree with me on that one over there. I'll say that again. We're not only pursuing truth-telling, which is the content of our words, but trustworthiness, which is the content of our character. If you've ever lost trust, you know how painful it can be, and what's at stake long-term. I've known people, you've known people, I'm sure, uh, who are really skilled liars, like it's an art form, you know? It's, it's almost as though it's harder for some people to tell the truth than it is to lie. It's like it's an automatic, effortless thing. But I've, I've seen what happens when someone is found to be a liar, the trust that is lost. It's, it's really difficult to regain that trust, I'm here to tell you it's not impossible to regain that trust, but it's difficult. And that's because a lot of our testimony goes far beyond, did you take a cookie without my permission? A lot of false testimony involves building an entire narrative that shines a favorable light on one person or scenario by cloaking another person or scenario, in shadow and suspicion. It's a form of betrayal. Why do we lie? J.I. Packer suggests that most all lying can be boiled down to two motives, malice and pride. Malice and pride. Malice is when we lie to tear somebody down. Pride is when we lie to prop ourselves up or to keep others from seeing us in a bad light, or to impress others, or to use others. And so let me put this question to you. What are the lies that you tell to paint yourself in a better light? That's worth some thought. What are the lies you tell to paint yourself in a better light? Though we may develop intricate and really controlled strategies to trick everyone into seeing the only version we want them to see, God sees through it all. And Proverbs 6 tells us unequivocally, it offends him. God loves the truth. We're going to get to that in a second, the the message of the gospel for liars, but I want to take a quick pivot here to to address something that comes up a lot when we talk about this subject and that is is it ever okay to be untruthful is it ever okay to lie and it's a serious question and it's an important one to, to raise because as serious as honesty is to God and as necessary as it is for healthy community is it ever okay to be untruthful the answer is absolutely yes yes it is In fact, sometimes it's necessary. But what I would say is this. It's not so much an exemption to the rule as it is a reinforcement of the heart of the command. And I'll show you that in just a second. But the most common example of this is about enemies in wartime. So uh, when the Nazis knock on the door in Amsterdam of the home that's hiding Anne Frank and they say, do you have any Jews hiding in your attic? The answer that you give is no, right? Right? Or when Rahab hid the spies in Joshua 2, she lied. She told a lie. Right? Here's the principle. Here's the principle for when it is not only okay, but necessary to be untruthful. It's this. Those who seek information for the purpose of using that information to hurt or to kill or to malign the innocent have forfeited their right to the truth. That's the principle. Those who seek information for the purpose of using it to hurt, kill, or malign the innocent have forfeited their right to the truth. And so the command prohibiting bearing false witness actually supports that principle. And it does that because what what does the command prohibit? It prohibits using falsehood in a manner that would do what? That would work against your neighbor. You don't bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, we should use our words to seek and to secure our neighbor's good. So lying to protect them from evil is sometimes necessary. It's never good, but it's sometimes necessary. And so this command is about our use of words just as much as it's about falsehood. It's about what we say why we say it. Our words about our neighbors should always be focused on truthfully seeking their good and their flourishing. Now, I pray that we would never find ourselves in this position, but if we do, like when the Nazis knocked on the door in Amsterdam asking if any homeowners had Jews hiding in their attics, you say no. Even if it means you get caught And you die. You say no. Okay. Where's the gospel in this? I want to circle back to the Beekner and Van Gogh quotes to see the gospel for liars today. And that's that we don't just live in a world, but a world lives in us. And we have this great fire burning inside of us, but most people can only see a wisp of smoke. The point that I want to make here about that is this. It can be hard to live in this world. It just be hard to live in this world. It's hard to navigate. If we move through this world as liars, we're, we're just going to make it harder for those who love us. It's already hard. But there is a way that God intended for us to live in reconciled relationship with him. The reason God hates lying is because it distorts the truth of his mercy. It distorts the grace that is freely offered to sinners. And what it does instead is it attempts to conceal our need for that mercy and that grace. It reveals deep in our hearts that we don't trust him. To be sufficient or to be gracious. And instead, what we have to do in this world that can be so hard to live in is fashion fabricated narratives in order to keep people at a safe distance. But the promise of the gospel is you don't have to cloak yourself in deception in order to be loved. You don't have to seek to impress people through exaggeration in order to have worth in this world. You don't have to tear other people down in order to be esteemed. Because God sees you as you are. And he knows all your secrets. And he loves you. And he loves you because... He loves you. And it doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with him. He loves us so much that he gave us his son who lived and who died for us because he knows how desperately we need to be delivered from seven different forms of deception and more. And he conquered the grave so that you would never have to live another day in darkness. God knows the world that lives in you. And he knows what's swirling around in it right now. He knows how hard it can be. He knows the lies that you tell to paint yourself in a better light. He knows the lies that you accept from others in order to not have to deal with difficult things. But his love for you will never be based on your ability to spin a really great story that will impress him. Because he already loves you. And that means you're already secure. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you care about honesty. Lord, we acknowledge that it can be hard to be honest because there's a vulnerability that goes with it. And sometimes we may not feel that we just have much to work with. Uh, We may not feel like we have much in the tank and so we want to just pretend. Lord, for some of us, we may be just deep in a web of deception and Lord, you tell us in your word that you bring things to light and you do these things because of your mercy and your kindness. And is a sober thought. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust in your goodness and your mercy. Deliver us from the need to feel like we need to make of ourselves more than we already are uh, in order to have worth or esteem, but to really trust and to believe that You love us, and you love us perfectly, and you've demonstrated your love for us. Give us a humility to walk in honesty, even for the deficiencies it would reveal in us, because your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And we thank you for your mercy and grace. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.